Today I caught up with Ryan Hyland, the head coach for the John Jay men's basketball team. I met Ryan six years ago when he first got the job, and one of the things that I admire about Ryan is his candidness, and he's never refused to speak to me or answer any question that I've had for him on the record. And full disclosure, as the main play-by-play voice for John Jay's basketball teams, there were some tough times for the program. I openly questioned some schematical things on air, but I always gave him the opportunity to explain himself, and I think that's the key for any broadcaster towards the team that they cover. Anyway, we have our most honest on-air discussion. He was great as always. Here he is, Mr. Ryan Highland. How's the quarantine treating you? It's good. I mean, it's if it was going to happen at any point in the year, this is the time I would want it to happen, if that makes sense. Um, you know, March is for us, it's wrapping up the season that just happened and then trying to finish up, you know, if there is finishing up to do with recruiting, um, before that all starts all over again in April. So it's, it's, it's never an ideal time to be locked in your freaking house. But, um, if, if there's a time for a college basketball coach at the division three level, then this is probably the best one. (laughs) When, when normally do you start recruiting? Um, so we're always, we always try to stay like a year ahead, if that makes sense. Um, so we have a list of 20, 21 kids that we've already, um, either had to come to our camp or we've kind of just kept a tab on from afar, just from what we did last summer with our 2020 recruiting. Uh, but really April is kind of when it switches. Once the first couple events kick off in April, usually around, uh, Easter, if not the week after Easter, um, you know, that's when it's almost full blow again into the next year, into the 2021 class, which would be this April for us. Do you think the, you're going to hear anything from the NCAA or anything in terms of when you can recruit or if you can, or have they given any direction? So they've given some direction. Um, they haven't specifically addressed the Division three level, but for Division one and two, it's a complete dead period, which means you can't go off campus to see any recruits and you can't have anybody on your campus. Um, as a visit up until April 15th. I would imagine that gets extended. Um, But in the meantime, you're allowed to be on the phone. You're allowed to video chat. You're allowed to talk to the coaches, the parents, the families, the kids. Um, There's just no in-person contact. So it would be treated as if it was, you know, August, which is, um, well, everything but the the phone calls. In August, you're not allowed to, at the Division One and Two level, you're not allowed to go see anybody play. Um, Right. Division Three level, you can kind of do anything at all times. There are certain rules. Don't. That's not the right thing to say, but there, there's <laughs> a lot less rules. There's a lot less rules than at the higher levels. Well, no, and we know that everybody follows the rules at the higher levels anyway. So you know, it's not a problem. <laughs> right. 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 Um. So I, I I spoke to Doug earlier today, and I mean Doug's always great and whatnot. And I told him that you know after the Brooklyn loss, it really bummed me out. And I'm just someone who watched the games this year. I mean, you guys yeah. were in it. Are are you over it? Are you? Is it still bothering you? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, we, we've been able to move on from a lot of wins quickly this year. And and granted, it's a different level of game. It's a different stage that we were on. Um, so I think it stuck with them and, and with me for a little bit longer than, than a regular game would have, obviously. Um no, we didn't play our best. They played a great game. They had a good game plan. Um, you know, there's a lot of ifs and woulds, would have and could have and should have that we could we can discuss and probably until um, everyone's frustrated. But 
um, you know, it was it was a, it was a good game. It was an ugly game, and that's what they wanted. And and I thought they did a great job. And and you know, they they won a tough game in in March and late February. So that's a lot of tribute to them. Is there one play that you want back? Uh, <laughs> I'd like I'd like an, uh, a rev- a booth review of the the tip in that was called off that Kyle had on Angel Steel. Um, you know, there's plenty of plays in the first half or early in the second half where we were just a little careless with the ball or took a shot that maybe we weren't, um, it was a good shot, but not a great shot. Or, you know, we threw a good pass that could have been a better pass that would have maybe made the shot easier that we could have scored. You know, our issue wasn't our defense in that game. Um, it, it was definitely on the offensive side and, um, you know, their zone, it didn't, you know, it got the results that I'm sure they wanted in terms of shooting percentage and points, but it didn't bother us. We were able to run our stuff. We were able to get the shots we wanted. Those shots just didn't fall. And basketball is a crazy sport, and some days they go in when they shouldn't, and some days they don't go in when they should. So um, we, we we got what we wanted out of it. We just needed to execute a little bit better. Right. And, I mean, I know that there's a million good things that you've said about Doug this year, and you've been very – laudatory towards your other players too but specifically Doug you know player of the year only two points but he gave everything that he can on defense too you knew that he wasn't 100 percent what does it say about his toughness and his character that people didn't realize about him before and saw after that game yeah you know one of the things I said to Doug after the NJCU game actually was that I was just really happy that he played Um, once we knew that he couldn't necessarily make the situation much worse and it was going to be some level of pain tolerance and, um, you know, inability to do certain things. Like he couldn't, he couldn't turn his hand outward. So, you know, right. to, to literally put in the shooting motion, um, that gave him a lot of pain. Um, so we, we knew that. And obviously he's, you know, shooting 42% from three and a big part of his offense and our offense relied on him playing on the perimeter and being able to stretch out bigs and, create driving lanes for Kyle and Jason and Mello and Angel and those guys. And, um, you know, Brooklyn picked up on that, no doubt. And he was still able to be effective while only scoring two points. He had 13 rebounds and six blocks. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad he played. Um, I think if he didn't play in that game versus Brooklyn or that game versus NJCU and, and we lost anyway, um, he would have been riddled with, you know, uncertainty and anxiety of what could have happened if he did, um, as well as as well as his teammates, as well as me and and the other coaches. So, the fact that he was um, tough enough, strong enough, um, you know, mentally capable of, of being able to go into that game and play and and be um, a productive member on the court for us was was tremendous. I was impressed and always will be impressed with him for that. Yeah, and you know what? That NJCU game. I mean, they shot what seventy five percent, almost. Um, I mean, was, you can't beat teams insane. when they're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. We had we, we had back-to-back games where we held the team to 26% shooting and then, like, 66% shooting. Um, <laughs> and we didn't change much of what we were trying to do defensively between the two games. Um, right. You know, they, they, they were um, just a different caliber of, of college basketball player. Um, bigger, stronger across the board than a lot of the teams we faced this year. Um, you know, I thought, I thought a guy like Sam Tony, who, you know, comes in with a ton of accolades was, was really impressive. Um, but I thought he was backed up by four or five or six different guys that touched the floor for them that were equally as impressive. And, 
um, that's a team that I will be sure not to have on my schedule next year. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't want to see them either. Um, yeah, it's tough. You know, and I don't know how much you know about Sam Tony's story. I'm sure you have. It's hard not to root for a kid like that either. Obviously, you're coaching against them and you want to win that game, but a story like his, it's, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's what I think in, in some way is the beauty of Division Three, right? You, you see some of these stories and these kids who are now men or women and coaches who've, you know, sacrificed literally parts of their lives for them and, and help find them or help bring them to a place that, that maybe they didn't think was attainable. And, you know, Sam's story is unbelievable. It helps that he's a heck of a player, but um, you know, that, that game on, on March 6th or 5th or 7th or whenever it was, uh, that was the first time I ever got to meet him. And, and that's, you know, as respectful and humble and nice of a person that I've ever met along the way too. And um, it's just great. I, I wish, for him, I wish his senior year ended a little differently, like I do for some of our guys. Um, you know, he had a, a ton of success over the first three years, and obviously a little bit different career um, his senior year. But um, you know, just impressed with who he was, impressed with with how he carried himself, and on top of that, what what kind of player he was was really impressive as well. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And everyone, sh- you know, check out his story too. NJCU, um, they do a good job there. All right. So, I mean, I feel like I've spoken enough at length about this past season. And I mean, we could rehash it all you want. But there are some other, you know, cool coaching stories that you just have. And particularly, I think it was, was it two years ago or a year ago when you were featured in The Athletic um, about renting out gyms to NCAA tournament teams or Big East tournament teams? Yeah, I think it was two years ago. Uh, It was when, it was the year that the ACC, the Big East, and the Big Ten were all in New York at the same time, so I think it was right. twenty. I think it was twenty eighteen. Okay. Um, so I'm just curious, how does that all work? Like, how does how do you get in touch with Notre Dame or Villanova or you know any of those schools? Uh, it's, it's it's all pretty crazy. Um, some of the legwork is done on our side of things, and uh, Casey Summers, who's been in that role for the past few years, I kind of helped in that role uh, prior to her taking over. So. Um, you know, we realize that we have, you know, uh, an in-demand commodity. Basically, we have one of the four gyms in New York City that you use when you come into town to play at or, or Barclays, doesn't matter. Um, so we we had conversations at the time back then about um, rather than waiting for them to reach out to us, why not be proactive in the search? So we created a, a database of all the ACC, Big East, Big Ten teams all of their coaching staffs, all of their emails, all their support staff, all of their emails. Um, and we sent out, I sent out a, a ton of you. Um, hey, we have a gym. Here's where it is. Here's what it costs. Here's when we can get you in. Here's what's already taken. Um, good luck. If it doesn't work out with us or Baruch, you're probably not finding a place to go. So, um, you know, John and I, in that sense, and, and specifically at that time, worked together um, just to help each other out. You know, we, we were having back-to-back-to-back days with, four or five different teams coming through our door, and, you know, holding one team in the free elevator while the other team finishes on the court and, you know, swap them off and hoping they don't see each other and they're frustrated. And every single time they saw each other and, you know, wound up having a, a pretty good laugh along the way. But um, yeah, it was a fun time. It was a really fun time for me and, and my, my coaches and um, every one of those teams, every one of those coaches was fantastic and, you know, wanted to know about our team and our program and our league and our players and, um, you know, to, for, for our team to eat lunch and Jay Wright to walk in to say hello, like, you know, that, that means more than anything I said to him throughout the whole year. So, 
they're uh, they benefited from it as well. And um, you know, it's up to do the same this year. We're supposed to have Butler and Villanova and Washington, uh, on the Wednesday that they closed John Jay. So last week, so um, right. It's it's still very much something we're we're doing and trying to do. I think the scale of what got us, you know, some of the notoriety and publicity a few years ago was. You know, because it was Notre Dame getting off the court for Wake Forest to come in, to Villanova to come in, to, you know, Marquette to finish up. And, you know, when you have Wojo and Jay Wright and Danny Manning and Mike Bray in the same room within a few hours, uh, you know, there's going to be some media outlets trying to cover something there. Right. Well, I mean, you brought up his name, so I'll ask you. Um, the only Jay Wright that I've seen has been in front of the camera, very polished. What is he like? Is he the, is he the same guy? Is he a little more relaxed? Uh, in practice, he is, um, I, I think the best way to put it is he has total control. Uh, he has assistant coaches that he lets coach. He has, you know, strength coaches that he lets run the strength coach, the strength stuff. He has, you know, everyone knows their role. The film guy runs to his corner. The ops guy runs to his spot. You know, the managers are on top of it. And um, the practice is, is military-esque, I would say. Um Players know what's acceptable. They know how hard they need to work. They know when they're going to get, you know, called out of chastise for not doing, you know, what's within the Villanova culture. Um, you know, they do a couple of, of simple things that I think carry so much weight that we've kind of, you know, stolen. Um, I won't make up a word for it. Stolen into our practices. Um, you know, their, their biggest thing is attitude. You know, hear a book about it, but. There's no, there's no pouting. There's no being sorry for yourself. There's no, he doesn't allow um, anybody to have literally a bad attitude in practice. So there might be a bad call and rather than getting frustrated or or yelling, like one of the guys will clap and say attitude and they pick their head up and they walk back to their team. And um, it's so hard. Um, It's so hard to suppress your natural emotion of being frustrated, which will happen a hundred times in a practice for each guy and coach and player. Um, but for them, you see them move on from it so quick and waste no time. And I think that's why they're in, in so many ways, that's why they're good and successful and have been for so long now. It's, you know, they don't waste time and they know who they are and they know what they need to do. And that makes them, you know, some of all their parts so much better than maybe their individual parts. When did you, did you meet him before they won their first championship or after? Yeah. So the, the, 2016 year, we had them in for uh, like six or seven practices that year, um, okay. and they went up, they went on to win it that year. So we had them, I think we had them early in the year for a tournament around Thanksgiving. Then we had them again when they played St. John's. Uh, then we had them for like three straight days for the Big East tournament, and then the New York, uh, the like the regionals of the NCAA tournament that year. So we had them back for two more days. Um, so by the time they got down to, uh, shoot, was that Houston in 2016, maybe? Um, yeah. Wherever the hell it was, you know. By the time they got down there, like I, I and our assistant coaches were like, yeah, you know, we're we're we're, we're part of their stuff. We're going with them. <laughs> they had <laughs> around so much, and um, you know, they have like open practices at the Final Four. People like, oh, you want to go? I was like, yeah, you know, I think we we've seen enough of of them this year. I think we're good. Right. Um. um did he change post championship? No, no, not at all. Really, I, I think more so than that, he's. Um, I think he's. I wouldn't say hands off isn't the right word, but I think he's more open to. You know, he has 
his staff is made up of uh, you know guys have been at a time um, in a support staff role at Villanova. So George and Kyle and, and Mike Hardy all were either operations or video or GAs at some point. Um, you know, their their GA now, um, Dwayne Anderson, their ops guy now, Dwayne Anderson, played there. Um, you know, the whole the whole staff at the bottom has some Villanova influence before they got into the roles they're currently in. So it's um, I think it's as comfortable as anybody could be with the staff that they have in the country. So therefore, he's able to you know give more to them to, to work on. Um, you know, it's their practices. Like I said, are are fun and enjoyable to watch, and they don't miss and waste a second. And you know, they're as connected of a team as, as I think you'll ever see in, on the in college. Yeah. Um, another guy that you brought up too. Uh, I know Michigan was in um, a few years ago, right? Uh, John B. Lyon, as well. Yep. When that all went down in Cleveland, I'm not saying you knew the guy as well as, you know, anyone else would have known him or, you know, in that extent. But were you surprised? And, and you know, like, what was your reaction to all of that? So when he first went to Cleveland, um, very surprised. I was actually on my – I was on a flight for my honeymoon and landed. Um, that was the first alert that popped up on my phone. And I thought, I thought it was like some – some joke article like there's no way to leave Michigan for Cleveland and um, I was as surprised as anybody um, and, and I understood it at the same time you know the guy had been successful in high school and junior college division division two division one you know then like four different levels of division one uh, yeah why not try the NBA it, everything else has worked um, and I think it was a good opportunity with you know a GM and Kobe Allman to take a chance the guy um, you know, Kobe's a rising star in this, and you know, obviously, Cleveland has some work to do in terms of fixing around their roster, but certainly has the availability to, to get good quick um, and have some young talent. So I understand why why Coach Beeline decided to maybe make the jump, and I don't think um, obviously being 2020, I don't, I don't think anybody envisioned what happened and played out to be what would happen or play out. So. Um, I think it was really surprising on the front end and even more surprising on, on the other side of how quickly it's integrated in terms of um, what seems to be the relationships and what seems to be the trust in the program because um, that guy can flat out coach and I knew you can tell and I think everybody can tell and honestly say that you know, it wasn't the basketball part of it that got him into trouble there or that got him kind of pushed out of there. Um, it had to be the other side of things. Did you see any of that sort of dictatorship type stuff when he was at Michigan or anything like that? No, not at all. A similar program to, you know, what Villanova has. And I think similar program to what we have, you know, a family-based culture. And, um, you know, like if you looked at Michigan's roster and you look at the players they had and, and where Michigan had its success with, with Beeline, um, it wasn't, you know, top 20 recruits. You know, right. none of the none of those guys from um, you know Trey Burke to Hardaway to Karis Levert, like they were all eight, ninety, a hundred, or unranked guys. You know, Duncan Robinson was at Williams before they had him. Um, you know, those are all guys that got better because of the system, the culture, the family that they played in. And, and without Coach Beeline, none of that exists. Um, you know, it's easy. I want to say it's easy. It's different to take high-level talent and be successful. 
um, that that's one way of doing it. The other way and his way of doing it was, you know, taking guys who were, who were talented, who were good, who belonged there, but, you know, raising them to another level collectively. And Michigan, I thought, did that better than anybody over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, you know, obviously NBA teams have gone there too. Uh, the Lakers before, um, I think it was Kobe's last year, right practice there when uh, Kevin Durant was with the Thunder. Um, what is it like to watch the work ethic, particularly of those two guys? I mean, the stories for Kobe can go on and on and on. But, you know, Kevin, I think Kevin Durant gets a bad rap. And, like, he's one of the toughest working guys in the league, too. And I think what gets him in trouble is his mouth, and he'll mouth off at people that, you know, don't appreciate him or his haters or thing like that. You got to see, you know, them a few times. What, what was that like? So uh, I'll start with the, the day the Lakers were there and Colby was there. Um, Coach Coach Wade Cornegate will never let me live this down. Uh, it was our first year as the staff at John Jay, and we had a scrimmage that I needed to schedule um, late, which we found out the Lakers were coming afterwards. Otherwise, we never scheduled it. Um, we had to go up to, to um, Westfield State in Connecticut and we had to play a scrimmage day. So we didn't get to see Colby. Um, Brandon okay. did, the staff did, the other people around the school did, uh, but Wade and I didn't, and he'll never, ever forgive me for that, um, <laughs> understandably. Um, but we've had, over the years, we've had, yeah, like you said, the Thunder in when Durant and Westbrook were both there. Um, we've had the Wizards in a few times with Scott Brooks, coincidentally. Um, the Pistons, the Hawks, the Grizzlies, um, a whole bunch of teams along the way. And, and what you always see with the NBA teams, which is a lot different than the college teams, the Jay Wrights, the John Belons, you know, those guys, um, it's it's the players. The players' voice is so much louder. Um, the players' voice is so much um, – I think it carries a little bit more weight than the NBA level. The coach is very much in charge, and you can see it on a whole bunch of different levels. Like Stan Van Gundy, when he was there with the Pistons, like it was start to finish. It was like a high school practice. Like – you knew exactly what drill you were doing, knew where you were going. It didn't matter what anybody else said. I'm in charge. Watch me. Listen to me. And then you watch a practice with like Scott Brooks, who's very much more hands-off, gives a ton of responsibility to his players. And when Durant and Westbrook were there, obviously that made sense in Oklahoma. Um, and with the Wizards, Bradley Beal, Don Wall, and some of those guys, it was very much the same. Um, you know, both effective styles of, of leading and teaching. Um, all of those teams that have come through, uh, in the years they had gone through, it had been really successful. And, um, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, that's the coolest part of this whole thing, uh, John Jay, is to have these teams come to us. Um, you know, in the fall, I try to spend a couple of days going to see other teams practice and see other things. But you know, to be able to walk down the hall from my own gym and have you know Durant and Westbrook in practice uniforms and going through drills, um, that's that that's cool stuff that you're not getting anywhere else. And and you know, I got a notebook full of, of things we've picked up along the way to to really try to implement with our guys and our practices in the future. Was Dwight Howard's impression of Stan Van Gundy accurate? <laughs> it's not not too far off. Um, okay. Stan's a good guy though. Stan, I'll 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 vouch for Stan. All right. Um, I know Dwight Howard Dwight Howard wasn't his favorite. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and vice versa. <laughs> Um, yeah. but anyway, so you mentioned that, you know, you've got a whole notebook of things that you implement to your team too. Um, division aside, it be, now being college too. I think one of the toughest things for coaches is having all this information, but making it digestible to the players, particularly student athletes who have 
to worry about classes and papers and, you know, they've got their own social lives too. Um, how have you gotten better at that? Um, really just by being simpler. Um, when I got started six years ago, I had, you know, uh, visions of grandeur in terms of how we're going to run stuff and the intricacies and what we're going to do. And, uh, it really, um, it really had to change a lot in terms of, um, you know, sim- not only just simplifying the, the X's and O's portion of it, but simplifying the messages, like you said, you know, basketball's one eighth at most of these days, um, 21 of their other hours are, are doing, um, frankly, more important stuff, you know, being in class and you know, working towards internships or jobs and uh, meeting with professors, meeting with advisors, the social aspect of being in college. So um, to expect, you know, the three hours that we have them to dominate, you know, mentally what's going on is way too much. So we've been able to simplify what we're trying to do, really clear, concise messages, um, you know, working on a couple of options off of whatever, you know, play it might be other than five or six or seven um, and, and really giving them control over it and, and teaching them how to play it rather than to teach them specific plays. Uh, definitely still have a good amount of, um, you know, X's and O's and quick hitter type stuff and sets like an NBA style of, of play, but um, definitely a lot more freedom on their end to make decisions or read the play, read the defender offensively or defensively and, and you know, make their own kind of reason and, and plays off of that. When did you realize that, you know, having this game plan and, and trying to implement it would not be as easy as you thought it would? Uh, when we were 0-9, my third year. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but, Seriously. It, and, that's, and that's, and sorry. Uh, we were 0-9 going into Christmas break. Uh, we had more talent. Doug's freshman year. We had, um, you know, obviously Ashan and Jerome and Luciano and those guys, Jordan Aiken and, um, on paper, we were better with you know, Mike King Richardson and Kieran Hayes and, and Wyatt Harkins at the time, um, you know, and we weren't seeing those results. And, and that's where um, we had, a, I think it was 12 days off over Christmas, and I more or less took everything we had and ripped it up and started over and realized we needed to do things a little bit simpler, a little, a little bit more creative, a little bit more towards the strengths that we had and we were doing, and uh, we came back out of that break, beat Sarah Lawrence, and then we beat Baruch at home at Medgar at York. We won four in a row. We won, you know, and when we turned things around, we won 11 games that year. 11, I think we finished 11 and five after starting 0 and nine, and um, that was kind of the confirmation I needed to be like, hey, don't overthink this stuff. Like, don't over try, don't try to overcoach. Just you know, pull the reins back a little bit and let these guys play. Um, and we saw the the benefit of that, obviously. Was there any outside pressure at that time? Because I know you put a ton of pressure on yourself, but were you hearing anything or, you know, during that tough time? Um, from like, not not from people at John Jay, but more, it was more internal for, for me. Um, you know, I felt like it was, uh, it, it was frustrating because we could be better than we were. Um, and... You know, I definitely didn't plan on starting my career eight and sixty-one or whatever it wound up being. Um, you know, I, I thought that there would be some struggles, but you know, when I, when I took over in in twenty fourteen, I was hoping by oh, I try to set kind of uh, thresholds and goals, and to realize that we weren't even freaking close at that point in time. 
Um, it was pressure really mounted on me. And then once I was able to kind of compartmentalize that, put it on the side, and just get back to enjoying being in practice every day with these guys, then we were able to kind of move forward. And, um, you know, to have great assistant coaches and great support from my family and, and friends. Um, they didn't care what the hell our record was. They saw the progress. They saw we were getting better. Um, and that was really useful when we started getting a couple of wins along the way to, to see that and how that resonated with them and um, see the and it caused in the athletic department or caused in the you know, in the players and their families and you know all of a sudden there's ten more people at every game and just a little bit more fun and I think that helped fuel everything so not really pressure but more like they were just waiting for the the first kind of penguin to jump in so the rest of them were all flying in behind right. Yeah, no, definitely. And and that's the one thing, too, that, that was cool about this year in particular. I mean, your family always showed up. Your parents always showed up. Your wife always showed up. Uh, brother, you know, the whole staff. But, I, you know, John Jay, for people that really don't go to the doghouse and when they only see the streams, they think it's empty on your side of the floor. But it's really sold out. And, you know, they really got a good good taste of that in the in the CUNYAC semifinal because it actually was totally sold out um, like homecoming, too. Oh, no doubt. Um I think the players felt it too. The guys who've been there kind of through the, you know, the, the growth process for us, um, they would acknowledge it a little bit. Or you know, in warm-ups, they'd come over and be like, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of people over there. <laughs> um, you know, and, and John Jay, the doghouse, is not the biggest venue, but you know, those cinder block walls, they, they, they reverberate some sound pretty good. And, you know, if we had 300, 400 people in there on like a Tuesday night for a non-conference game, like – that place was loud, um, and then you saw the you saw the capacity that it could hit come you know the Brooklyn semifinal game or homecoming, which was a great one. Um, senior day even you know that Saturday afternoon versus Brooklyn, that place was was rocking, and um, I don't lose my voice ever. And after that game on senior day, I was I wasn't lost, but I was definitely hoarse the next morning. And um, you know it was, it's fun. That that's that's what we want. That's what these guys want. You know we had a bunch of recruits at all those games, and they're like, "This is what it's like." And it's like every time, man. Yeah, this is what it's like. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it was it was cool to see it kind of reach that um, reach that level, and, and definitely fun to play and coaching, no doubt. Early on, you get the job at John Jay. I know it was a different interview process. Was that the first uh, head coaching interview that you were on? Yeah. So. May 2014, I graduated um, from from grad school at Catholic on my my MSBA, um, and that was the end of my employment at Catholic at the same time as well. So I was um, graduated undergrad 2011, started in August of 2011 as a volunteer assistant at Catholic. I had previously applied to 100 different jobs, GA positions all over the country. Um, was close to going to grad school at University of Florida. Things fell through. Um, wound up at Catholic was great. Learned a lot in the year that I had been there as a volunteer. And, and there was, you know, basically an, an understanding that I would slide into the GA position in the following year. Um, and then that would be a two-year kind of contract. So I always knew May 2014 that things were going to end at Catholic. Like, that was that was clear. I had been prepared for that. Um, you know, so when May hit, I was ready to go to apply for jobs. I was still very much um, on a on a track to try to get to Division One as fast as possible. So I applied for every operations job. I applied for every video coordinator job. I applied for, you know, 100 different staff assistant jobs. 
Um, I applied for a couple of assistant coaching jobs at lower levels, um, some of the Ivy volunteer stuff, things like that. Um, but I was really, I, I wasn't looking to be in division three, um, plain and simple. So I, while not achieving much success over the first part of May, you know, beginning in June, I really started just applying for every single thing that opened. Um, the only head coaching job I did apply for was John Jay. I had no real thought of being a head coach at that time. Um, I didn't think I was ready. Um, and maybe I wasn't. Um, but I, I looked at the John Jay situation. The first interview I got, I was like, well, at least it'll be interview experience. So that when I, and when I have to go figure out an interview for an operations job in Kansas, something, then I can, you know, then I can maybe have a little bit to, to rely on. So I went into that interview, um, not nervous, really. I went prepared. I had everything I needed. Um, I met with uh, Carol and Kat. I met with Diane Ramirez, with Brandon. Um, and and Joe Mandili took me around on my tour and, um, you know, there for a couple hours, answered a bunch of questions. And it, it wasn't hard for me. I wasn't necessarily nervous. And I was just kind of speaking about all the things that we had done at Catholic and um, you know, I obviously had been a part of a really good program there, so I wasn't, you know, selling these crazy visions. I was just talking about what we what we talked about with recruits when when I was there, or, or the program that I was a part of, and how I wanted to take this much of it with me and bring it to John Jay and, and try to get on that level, try to build the program the right way. And you know, I talked about it taking time, and I, I talked about um, recruiting being really the most important part. I don't care if we have fancy, you know, practice shorts or anything like that. I'd want to spend every dollar we have recruiting and, um, resonated with Carol, I thought. And, um, a couple of weeks later, they called me back to come for a second interview. I was living in DC. So I took a train up that morning, the interview, uh, met with, uh, VP cook Francis at that time. And, uh, they kicked me out of the office after that. They told me to sit in the atrium for a little bit, and I did. And I thought I was in trouble. I really like nothing was nothing was like clicking. I, I didn't put anything together at that point. I still like did not necessarily want to coach Division Three. I didn't really want to be a head coach. I was 25 years old, um, and Carol came out and offered me the job. And I remember telling her, you know, I need. I need some time to figure this out. I think that was the first time Carol yelled at me and said, what the hell do you need any time for? You're here for your second interview. You didn't think we were going to offer it to you? Um, so I think she gave me 48 hours. I went home. I talked to a lot of people on that train ride home, and um, I think I called her at 8 a.m. this morning and accepted it. And uh, Again, the process of moving to New York and, and figuring out what the hell all this meant. And, um you know, changed my goals and trajectory really quickly. Um, and not that it wasn't something I wanted to do. I, I, my goal all along was to be a head coach. Um, you know, I want to, I wanted to, at that time, I wanted to be a coach at division one level. I thought the fastest way to get there was to get to division one. And, um, this along with, you know, the thousands of other paths that people have taken in the past is just a different way. Um, I've loved every second of here. I've learned, I think, a hell of a lot more in you know, the first few years of really failing, um, of not really being successful record-wise. I think I've learned more than I ever could have learned working for somebody else at 25 or 26 or 27. Um, so I, I think it's been a, a real blessing in disguise in terms of where I am now at, at 30 years old. I don't think I'd be here or ready for this 
um, to be a head coach today if I hadn't been able to, to learn and get my feet wet with, with Carol and, you know, six years ago. Do you think 2020 Ryan would have told 2014 Ryan Highland, take the job? You know, like, don't, don't, don't let this fester. De- definitely. Um, yeah, I, I think I've learned a ton. I think it forced me more than anything to, to grow. Um, you know, at that 25, like most 25 year olds, I, I wasn't the first thinking motivated individual. And um, once you realize that, you know, you guys get up and go to work, not because of you, but because there's 16 other guys waiting for you to tell what to do and staff of six guys and, you know, a department that's counting on you to get your job done. Um, you know, the responsibilities went, went off the charts right away. And, um, I think that's the best thing that could happen. Like throw me right into the fire and I'll figure it out rather than, you know, ease in, ease in, ease in for six years and, and maybe get this something I want to do. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, I remember the first time I met you was at the CUNYAC golf outing. I think after you got it, you hadn't coached yet. And I just remember thinking like, this guy's my age. Like this is not, not to say that you weren't prepared for the job or anything, but I said, wow, like they're really getting young over there. Cause um, Brandon brought me in for an interview and then Brandon and his Brandon voice, well, it's not really an interview. You know, we just want to have you come in. So I had an easier <laughs> interview process than, than you did. Um, but yeah, like you, you really have to give a lot of credit to Carol. Like she, she brought in her own people and they were all so young and like really hungry. And I feel like we were both the same. Like we, we both really wanted to do the best that we can in our own respective positions. Yeah. I, Carol leaned on, um, you know, self-motivation and self, you know, basically getting self-starters. Um, it's, it's a, a trick I've kind of borrowed from her in hiring assistant coaches. Um, in my six years, we've had 14 different assistants, I think. Um, two, only two of them had previous coaching experience at any point in time uh, at the college level before they came to us. So, you know, I, I've been fortunate and able to have these, you know, large staff that everyone likes to poke fun at. But, you know, I'm getting guys that, you know, want to get a foot in the door. Uh, I'm able to get them to work hard naturally because they know what they need to do in order to get the hell out of here. Um, and it allows them to push them in, 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 in the direction that they want to go anyway. So, like, hey, do a good job for a year or two here, and I'm going to kick you the hell out of here because I can't pay you, um, and you need to go get a better job anyway, but now you have two years of college experience. And, and I think Carol looked at that a lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of the same ways in terms of what she was hiring. Um, you know, within, I think it was within her first three years, if not even faster than that, you know, 14 of the 15 or 13 of the 15 teams had new head coaches. Um, And some have had, you know, a couple since then. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think she was um, really deliberate in the people she was bringing in. And I think that was more important to her than anything. Like, I don't care if you can coach to this level. Like, I need to be this level of a person first, and then we'll figure out coaching. And then we'll figure out the recruiting and then we'll figure out the academics and we'll figure out the other stuff. But like, if, if I can just bring in, you know, good people to be around in the program, um, you know, I think that was her, her most important attribute in terms of what she was. Well, now that you have the, you know, the six years of experience, a 21 season on your resume, um, you know, you have, you have tournament wins in there, uh, you know, conference tournament wins in there. Um, 
I know that the goal still has to be to get to the Division One level. That hasn't changed, right? No, um, it hasn't, honestly. Um, I think the timeline has changed. Um, I think the urgency has changed, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I like what we've built here. And, and for the last four or five years, it was always looking a year or two ahead. And it's still very much that way. Like, we're going to lose some great some great players with O'Neill and Lucci and Doug and Jason. But, you know, right behind them is Kyle and Romello and Angel and Garrison and Dan Kenny and Otis and, and some of these recruits that we've coming in. And, um, yeah, I'm as excited now in March of this year for what's going to come in October than – I was last March looking into this October. You know, it's um, uh, it, it, it's the type of thing where my personal goals necessarily are kind of like the volume has been lowered a little bit because of what John Jay has kind of become and, and the success that we've now proven we can have here. Um, you know, I, I think I think we can be uh, knock my own head here or something like. I think we can be even better next year. I think the, the versatility that we'll have, the defensive ability that we'll have, um, it will be very different than you know what we were able to get out of, of Doug and Jason over the past season. But, um, you know, I, I think a guy like Kyle LaGuardia can be player of the year next year. Uh, I think a guy like Romello Ford can be a first-team all-conference guy next year. And, um, you know, there's there's a lot of promise and there's a lot of really, really talented, hardworking guys Um that'll be back in the fold. So as much as I want to go, you know, be a coach in a division one level, I'm not ready to leave what these guys and what they're building right now. Have you no, right. And there's a lot to, to, to be happy about for next year too. And it's certainly going to be exciting if and when this quarantine ever ends, I hope it does. Um, but you know, now that you've had this, now that you have connections with other division one schools in terms of practicing and stuff, have you had discussions about any of that? Have any coaches ever floated that idea towards you? Not really. Um, you know, it, it, it's such a it's such a who you know business in that sense of it. But also, like, I'm not uh, necessarily the most attractive candidate for a, a guy like that. Um, you know, head coaches are head coaches at that level. Most of them can coach. Um, they're looking for guys to complement around that. So they're looking for the recruiter who has tons of connections or the player development guy that was doing the most cutting edge stuff or the analytics guy that, you know, brain works a million miles a minute. I am, I'm none of, I'm none of those three things. Um, so in many ways it's, I'm not the most attractive candidate. I didn't play division one. I didn't coach division one. So I have a lot of strikes against me in that regard. Um, all of that notwithstanding, could I do it? I think, like from a personal level and being, not humble for a second. Yeah, I think I could, but um, I definitely understand why my door's not getting knocked down, and um, I never really expected it to in that regard either. So, um, you know, I'm trying to just keep my head down and work my butt off here, and whatever will come will come out of it. If worst case, that's me and Jay again for the next 10 years and winning 20, win 20 wins every season, I'll, I'll take that every day. No, definitely. And same case with the Division Two level? Say that again? Same case with the Division Two level. Like, have you, you know, because I feel like the natural progression for you to get to that Division One, you'd have to go three, two, and one. Um, and like you said, you still need to have a wealth of 
of knowledge. I think, uh, you know, Rick Pitino obviously took the Iona job, and obviously Iona, if Rick Pitino is interested, uh, will find a way to get it done. But Tobin Anderson was one of the people that they brought up to at a Division II at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. So it seems as if it is possible to yeah. get there, too. Um, you know, but, but for you, um, you listed all of those areas. So I'm, I'm curious. Um, the first question is, any, any discussions, Division Two or anything like that? And the second is, well, what areas do you need to improve on, too, to, to get to that level? Yeah, so really, honestly, nothing from the Division Two level um, at, at all. Uh, you know, I, I think Division Two level is the hardest level to, to be a coach at. Um, you're kind of caught between two really different things, right? The Division One level, everyone on scholarship, um, you know, expectations are significantly higher across the board, whether you're at, you know, Kansas or you're at, you know, Long Island, Brooklyn, uh, LIU, Brooklyn. Like it, it, it's, there's still the fan base. There's still the expectations. There's still the, the absolute urgency every single day, the, the message boards and whatnot. Um, you know, and then division three, there's some schools that are competing obviously, at national levels. There's some schools that don't even know they have a basketball team. Um, and division two, somewhere in between that. Some schools have no scholarships. Some have full, full scholarships. Some have, some some Division two coaches are basically GMs where they say here's you know a hundred thousand dollars figure out your team, um, you know and and what a guy like Tobin has done for example like you brought him up, you know I think he's he's an evil scientist he's a he's a genius, um, you know to be able to have the success that he's had it and and consistent success at St Thomas Aquinas is unbelievable and I think that's really really hard to come by I don't think too many people outside the basketball world understand what he's done. Uh, he took a program that has had success in the past, but not recent success, and uh, you know turned it into I think it's five straight twenty-win seasons, or you know something absolutely ridiculous. Um, he deserves a shot if he wants it. You know, Iona would have made a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of other schools in this Northeast area that would benefit from you know his connections, the way he coaches, the style of program built and can build, um, you know, the style of play, let alone what they do is is, is amazing and. We've tried to slip some of that over the years and, and sneak up some of his practices and, and, and catching some of their stuff. But uh, as far as, as me, no, there has not been really any interest from other people. Um, and frankly, it's, it's a world that I don't know a lot about. Um, I could probably sit here with you and name every you know, Division One coach and staff and Scott and where they play in the, the league and conference. And I don't know if I get much out of the first 30 of Division II. Um, it, it's a world that really just never been part of it for me. I, I could division one and three, I'll give you everything about everybody. Division two is like, you know, cricket for me. It's like a whole different sport. Right. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate you being candid um, with all of that stuff too. And um, I, I really appreciate you being candid with me all the time. I mean, whether it's been on the phone or just in person too, and all of that. Um, I'm sure I probably annoy you at times, or at least when you listen to games. Not one. Not one. <laughs> You're very kind. Um, one last thing that I that that is just totally out of nowhere too, but um, I happen to come across it, um, and, and you mentioned this too. Why do you hate pickles? God, I wish I knew. Um, it'd be a, yeah. I could spend a, a month in quarantine figuring that out. Nice social experiment. Um, is it I, the I texture? Is it what is it? I, I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't like pickles. I don't like cucumbers. They remind me of pickles. Um, but I like pickled onions. I like pickled carrots. Um, so it's not necessarily the pickle part of it. 
it's it's just something that it's like scarred social recognition in my brain somehow. Um, my mom thinks it's because she ate a lot of pickles when she was pregnant. Um, that has not been scientifically proven. We, we've asked doctors <laughs> nothing there. Um, I just like if it's on my plate and I'm by myself, I don't know what to do. Um, my wife is absolutely amazing. If she sees a pickle, she's got a pickle radar. So like 30 feet away, if it's coming on a plate, she's already getting out and like making sure it's removed. Uh, my brother does very much the same, you know, over the years. Uh, Bob Walton, Sean Clores, those guys, they've, they've, they've much them off the plate along the way. Um, my players like to torture me with it. Um, I have promised them that if we ever won the Kimiac, uh, I would, you know, I would take the pickle of their choosing and, and take a very reluctant bite. But, uh, yeah, I don't I don't like them. I don't like them at all. They scare the crap out of me, to be very honest. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of, like, those old Maury episodes when they had the phobias and people were afraid of the cotton. Like, I dressed yep. up as a cotton. <laughs> so there is a pickle episode uh, where somebody is afraid of pickles. And I have that been sent to me, I don't know, four or five times a year. <laughs> Somebody comes across it on the first person they think of, and then I have to watch you know, the same Maury clip of a girl running off stage. Like, I'm yeah. 13 and I'm afraid of pickles. Well, I'm 30 and I'm afraid of pickles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, Maury raised me on, on days like this. So it's a shame it's not what it was. I actually went to a taping a few years ago and it was paternity, but all of the parent, all of the cases where you wanted the guy to not be the father, he was the father, and then the one case where you wanted him to be the father, he wasn't. So it was really depressing that night. That sounds terrible, yeah. Yeah, no, it's awful. Or, well, listen, or... yeah, no, I hear you. Well, you know, maybe one day you'll be able to shake that phobia, or hopefully, you know, next year is when you have your first pickle since you've had them before, right? I, I mean, yes, that's the only way I know I don't like them. Okay. Um, stuck on a burger somewhere or you know, within a, a sandwich I wasn't ready for it. Uh, okay. it, it's usually ruined my day. Okay. <laughs> Alright. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate the time. Um, you know, and, and thanks for everything you've done this year and, and just, you know, throughout the years. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for giving me the time. And uh, obviously, we'll talk soon. Yes, sir. Thanks, John.